You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming pediatric urologist, Dr. Steve Hodge to the show. Dr. Steve has numerous journal articles and several books for children and parents on bedwetting, accidents, and potty training. He's the country's leading authority on bedwetting, potty training, and childhood constipation. Today, he's here to talk with us about all things poop. I wish I was joking, but I'm really not. And as a mom, we know too well that our conversations go from being about our own social lives to being about our children's poop in the early stages of parenting. Dr. Steve is with us today to talk about the most appropriate age to start potty training, how constipation can affect accidents and wetting, what happens when your child holds their poop, how long and until what age it's normal to wet the bed, and when you should start to seek professional help and support around toileting challenges. This is a very informational and educational episode that addresses a power struggle that I know all too well. So get ready to learn about all things poop. Hi, Mama. Erica here. I'm popping in because I know that the holidays are upon us. And for some, it's a really exciting time, while others, especially those who have boundary violators in their life, might find navigating the holidays with family a little bit difficult and challenging. So I'm here to tell you about my boundaries workshop. This workshop is presented by Dr. Asherina Reem, Psyched Mummy and I, where we define your boundaries, help you to assess your own boundaries, determine what they are, understand which boundaries are negotiable versus non-negotiable, help you avoid common boundary myths and mistakes, and provide you with tangible and practical scripts for how to set your boundaries especially with those boundary violators who like to overstep when you have set a boundary in the past. So if you are struggling with boundary setting with family members and are feeling anxious heading into the holidays, make sure to check out our new boundaries workshop, happyasamother.co slash boundaries. That's happyasamother.co slash boundaries. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. I have to say you are only the second male to ever grace our like motherhood oh, sacred really? space. Yes. Yeah. So it's, you know, quite an honor to, to yeah, be here fun. with all these mamas and stuff, but this is a much requested topic as well. So when I saw your information come through, I was so excited. I know that this is so relevant. We're talking potty training and constipation and bedwetting. Is it 
weird that like I'm oddly excited to have this conversation. <laughs> We're here to talk yeah, about <laughs> more people are more excited. It's a good problem. Yeah, well, it's so relevant for myself and I have three kids. I read that you've got three kids. Yeah. And so um, each of them, we have one still in diapers, still to potty train, but different experiences with different kids. So lots of stuff to dive into today. Why don't we start with sort of maybe some of the basics of potty training? Like when is a good time to start potty training? Some of the signs of readiness for potty training? Yeah, you know, I, I used to be pretty dogmatic about potty training. I've, I've gotten a little more relaxed just because I think at the end of the day, if you're going to have problems, it's probably genetic more than anything. You know, the behaviors are common amongst all kids that lead to the problems. And if you have the genes for bedwetting or whatever, then, you know, you may get them. But if you don't have the genes, you could train opposite of how I recommend it. The kid may be fine. But the general rule is that children can be taught to stay dry or to hold their pee and poop in at a very young age, but they don't know that you're supposed to go to the bathroom until they're much more mature. And so you have this problem where if you train them too early, they just are like, great, now I don't have to go to the bathroom ever. I can just hold it in forever. And that works for a while. And then eventually down the road, they get issues. Okay. And so my rule of thumb is three and a half is usually a pretty good age for most your average kid. Because before three is a struggle. After four, most people should be potty trained if they're developmentally normal mm -hmm. so if you start at three then the three and a half they can you know you can talk to them you can communicate like do you need to go do you not need to go they can get to the bathroom they can hopefully get their pants up and down and all the stuff that's there is is there including the maturity not that a three-year-old is very mature but a lot more mature than a two and a half year old and so right think, and then you know four yeah most kids you know if they go to school for and they're in pull-ups it's a problem and sometimes you know you can it either signifies a problem, which we'll get into, or they just get, you know, so used to going in a pull-up, they're just like, whatever. Uh, and then until the peer pressure kicks in, half is, uh, has worked well for me. Okay. So I'm really curious. I've seen your media kit. I see the resources and the MOPS book. If you can help me uh, break down what that stands for. You've put out some really accessible, tangible resources for people. And I'm really curious about how you came to specialize in this field of pediatric urology. Is that right? Yeah. So, so interesting story. So pediatric urology is a surgical field primarily. So we operate on the kidneys, uh, ureters, bladder, and then the you know, genitals if they have uh, congenital abnormalities. And most half my practice is that. But then you have about, you know, 50% of the kids that are just voiding dysfunction, pee and poop issues. Mm -hmm. and practices, because those are clinic visits with a pretty much cookbook solution, at least historically, they are seen not by the surgeon, they're seen by a physician extender. So PA, nurse practitioner, maybe a, maybe a resident or a fellow or something. And so the doctors aren't really seeing them. At my group, I was the only one seeing them because we didn't have any of the extenders, which you would think would be, uh, uh, from a surgeon's perspective, a bad thing because you're, you know, surgeons are looking for cases they can operate on. That's what they're you know, trained to do. And like, trained to do. Yeah. But I was seeing them. It's like, like, okay, I can do, you know, the cookbook therapy like anybody else can. So I'd follow the guidelines and interesting no one no one was getting better or, or i mean some people were getting better but the numbers of kids getting better was lower than i thought should be normal i was like this is this is not working that well back you know with these issues pretty regularly i think some people i think the trick is some people just don't see them back for a long time and like a year later maybe the issues aren't as big a deal but mm. i was back and, and not seeing progress so i thought to myself there's something kind of not right here and then a couple of things happened serendipitously right in a row is one is that i had a kid I talked about this in our first book that had constipation that was treated. Okay. I put the kid on Miralax. I did the usual stuff. 
Mm-hmm. A, a congenital condition that caused her UTIs to be more severe or urinary tract infections. And so she needed surgery. And so I said, oh, yeah, too bad. We couldn't fix it with the non-surgical methods, but no big deal. I know how to do the surgery. We did the surgery. And when we did it, her colon was full of poop. I mean, just really made the surgery difficult. There was so much poop in there. And I know that if that poop had been treated, Mm. she would have gotten better and maybe not needed surgery. And these parents were legit, you know, good parents. They're on board. They're like, no, she was pooping fine. No issues. And then the next week I went to a meeting in Cincinnati where they um, manage a lot of congenital problems in the bowels which interact with the bladder sometimes and they have to manage the kids bowels very well. And they were talking about, they x-ray the kids every day just to make sure they're getting empty when they're in their program. So I said to myself, Oh, you know, if I would have x-rayed that girl, maybe I would have known. So I went home and I started x-raying everybody that shows up for avoiding complaint. And they Mm. were all just completely full of poop. No matter what the parents say, parents can say, I've never had a poop problem or I have had a poop problem or my kid poops fine. or My kid never poops. It doesn't matter. The x-rays all look the same if they're accurate. And they were, and I was like, well, there it is. And I thought I was the first guy to figure this out. I thought I was going to win a Nobel Prize or something. But uh, <laughs> Dr. Regan turns out in the 80s had written about all this. But it's funny, he and he had aggressive program just like we have. But people just kind of, I don't know, they don't like enemas. And so, which we'll get into. And so they, they just kind of started over the years, gradually treating this less and less aggressively. And it kind of lost to, to uh, history. And what I think is people all know that constipation causes these problems. But no one knows how aggressively to look for to treat for it. Or, I mean, a few people know. And that's mm-hmm. why we've had a lot of success treating these problems. And our program has been picked up by a lot of centers all over the country. And, you know, we see kids all over the world nowadays. So fascinating. And it's like your world isn't controlled by poop until you have a kid who refuses to sit on the toilet and poop. So my first, we potty trained him around three or so. Really good, typical first child very responsible very very reward motivated or whatever like and and go and there's all kinds of different potty training methods which is you know we're not going to dump into today you guys can kind of do your own research on on what that looks like but my second he saw that his brother was using the potty and at two years old he decided he wanted to potty train himself and he did he just decided like i'm gonna like pee and poo on the potty and then his poo freaked him out or was hard or something happened. Mm-hmm. And then he just went into holding poo. And I didn't even want to potty trade him yet. Like it wasn't even a thing on my radar, but he just so badly wanted to be like his older brother. And it's led into all of these poop issues for us. So this is such an interesting topic for moms. And I think parents who this is a really real struggle comes to potty training. So when we're talking about constipation and we're talking about well, we're going to get into a couple pieces, but why don't we unpack the the signs of constipation first? Because you said like sometimes they maybe even go unnoticed by parents. Yeah, I think traditionally the cusp, the, the term constipation is a bat, is a difficult one because it means so many different things to different people. Okay, and the definition of that is really the barrier to getting these kids treated. And so, if you wanted to speak about what constipation is, there's so many definitions. There's like scientific, you know, di- diagnoses like these Rome criteria they have to to diagnose kids with functional constipation. There's the usual like hard poops, rare poops. I I find that the one thing that is consistent with what we find in kids, which is basically delayed pooping, right? Because their colon works fine. If the poop is moving through the colon fine, the problem is if it feels uncomfortable, they hold it in and then it piles up at the end of the colon. And then any kind of poop in the rectum gets water taken out of it. It gets harder. And then this cycle 
builds on itself. We have a graphic on our website, like signs of constipation. But the, the main one, if you just looked at for one, it would be large poop, like dark, large diameter poop. Because basically, if you're letting the poop out right away, it doesn't get impacted and uh, comes out easily. But mm-hmm. if you let it out after you've piled up, you know, a couple of days worth, it's going to come out, you know, wider than two centimeters and sometimes wider than even uh, even that. Uh, so um, common thing for parents is, oh, I can't believe that came out of them or looks like an adult poop. If you're saying that about your kid, they're probably what I would call constipated. Yeah. And I had read the infographic and it had said things like like streaks in underwear or all these other kind of telltale signs for my son. I don't know, like he really resists the urge to poo. And so there will be a lot of like, it almost looks like butt clenching. Like he'll like not want to like sit down and he will have some wild behaviors around when he needs to poo. I used to work at a psychology clinic that specialized in like working with children. So it was a family and children practice. And one of the head psychologists there specialized in poop issues (laughs) because yeah, from like a behavioral and psychological perspective and working with the parents because sometimes there can be like a behavioral component to this as well, or like dynamic in the home around this. So would you say, this is sort of maybe off some of the questions that we had prepped for today, but would you say that behaviors and aggression around poop and constipation is a thing? Is that something that parents have brought to you at all? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's just, you're you're uncomfortable, right? It hurts. They're they're anxious. Anxiety, definitely. And Mm. so they don't know how to deal with it. And I think if you're in tune, you know, a lot of times parents are working and no one's home to watch it. You really got to be in tune, like for that kind of behavior you described. Like if they're like all of a sudden their demeanor changes and they're clenched or they're hiding in a corner, yeah. that is normal. And a lot of people will blame it. You know, they want their privacy or whatever. I don't like pooping to be in the kid's head too much. I don't like them to be like, oh, my goodness, here comes the poop. You know, I got to go get in a position. It should be in a perfect world, and, I, and this may be unrealistic. They just kind of pause, they poop, and they keep playing or whatever. Mm-hmm. Because that means it's not in their head, and they're not going to clench. And, and that whole clenching behavior is what starts all these problems. Again, some kids may do that and do fine, and, and, and it's probably the most common abnormality in kids uh, in general, you know, is that kind of delayed defecation. But, but if, you're, if you're aware of it and you're watching for it and you aggressively intervene, the kids do great. You know, I, I knew about this, obviously, when I had kids, so whenever I saw it, I – and even I got fooled, like my youngest was putting out little soft streaks, which I was like, well, maybe that's all she needed. You know, I'm kind of talking myself into it, but it was just what was leaking around. And then one day she let out this huge eggplant and I was like, oh, my poor kid, you know, suffering. And so, but I jumped in right away, gave them a lot of help. And then they just never developed kind of these inhibitions and they were just totally chill about pooping their whole lives and would go in preschool and stuff. So I saw a lot of benefits of aggressive treatment. So you don't want to ignore that stuff when you see it. You want to get in there and they should poop just like your puppy or your or your horse that's out there just pooping, just whatever. <laughs> Not like a major uh, stressor in their, in their existence. Right. Yeah. And so with our middle one, he went, I guess you had to like four or five days without pooping. And we called the oh, pediatrician. We're like, okay, this is just not, not okay. Right. And big meltdowns, big behaviors, the things. So we started like a, she's like top down, you know, with like a restore relax or a stool softener. And that's been a part of his routine and it keeps it going. And there's no issue and there's no fear. There's no hard poops. He doesn't get worried. And it seems to everything has been back on track. But if we miss it or go away for a few days or something and he gets out of routine, then some of these behaviors surface again. So yeah, yeah, I think that an important point is that people think it's a one-time event. Like if a six-month-old or two-year-old or whatever, whatever life event brings on the holding, it's not like you can just give them a Miralax or a Storlax and then they pet poop and they're better. 
that's a sign that they're a withholder, they're anal retentive or whatever. And they're probably going to need help to their old enough to know better is what I say. And that's, yeah, that was like five or six where you could be like, okay, listen, if it hurts, you got to let me know and I'll give you the medicine. And they're like, okay. But if you, if you ever try to, and people say, oh, Miralax doesn't work maybe or whatever laxative because they try it for a week and stop it. And then the kid comes back or they have this false notion that maybe the kid's dependent on it. The child isn't dependent on it. It's just that little kids will not poop if it hurts. And you can't keep the poop soft enough not to hurt naturally. It's just really difficult with modern society. So most kids do need a little help. And it, yeah, honestly. Well, and I think that you brought up such a valid point too. Like once he had that one hard poop, the anxiety and the fear, and he's a big feelings kind of kid, like it just kind of rocked his world. And then we've been dealing with poop issues ever since. So we were quite happy with the regime that we're on. And it works well and keeps things going at, you know, at our house. So, so there's been some questions that I hear often about potty training with kids. So we've done our potty training, whether we've done our three-day method or whatever we've done. Right. And then sometimes parents will do like the bedtime training at that time. Sometimes they won't, but let's talk about bedwetting. Mm -hmm. Is it a realistic expectation to potty train a three, three and a half year old and have them be also nighttime dry? Or what is, what is your expectations in terms of dryness at night? Yeah. So my thoughts are a little controversial, but I think they're right, obviously, um, is that there is no such thing as night training. The physiologically normal state for humans is to pee while awake. And so if you're peeling, if you're peeing while asleep, probably not normal. But the issue is, you know, at what age is it reasonable for a kid to like take themselves to a bathroom at night, right? So if I was three and I woke up and I had to pee, I might just stay in bed because it's scary or something. So that's the dilemma in terms of, I don't think, I don't think there's an t- age where a kid couldn't be dry at night if they could get to the bathroom. I just think there's, some of them are in cribs, some of them can't go to the bathroom, some of them would just rather pee in a pull up. Your child is unconscious and peeing themselves. So they're asleep and they're wetting their bladder. That's not normal in my book. And it four, I think is a reasonable age, you can start treating that. So you've made this link between like bedwetting and constipation and these issues that we've been talking about. So help me understand like what, what that starts to look like in terms of treatment or how you start to, where a parent would start if their four-year-old is still bedwetting. Yeah. So here's the, uh, the best way I've found to describe this is they think about a six-month-old that's peeing, right? How do they mm. pee? They just sit there, look at you, you know, funny, you take their diaper off and they pee. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's a reflex. It's an infant reflex, much like you probably have seen all the reflexes your kids have, like with the, the grasp reflex or like they're, they're turned to the bottle. These mm-hmm. are all reflexes that are hardwired that allow the child to use, do their normal functions without having to think about it. And so that reflex happens because when the bladder fills, it sends a signal to the spinal cord. The spinal cord says, okay, it's time to pee and sends a signal back to empty. And the brain is not involved at all. Once you're potty trained... Um, the brain's involved, obviously, and you can withhold peeing and then go when you want. If you are asleep, the same thing should happen. The, the brain should be aroused if you need to pee and you go to the bathroom just like we do. But just like a lot of infant reflexes tend to wane over time, the infant voiding reflex is pretty strong in young kids. So minor stimulations down there may cause that arc to fire and the pee will come out without you even getting a signal to your brain and so you don't wake up. And that is compounded by rectal poop. And so there has been, there have been unequivocal studies. I mean, like you cannot, there's never of all the causes of bedwetting, whether it's sleep issues or too much, you're not put, you can find a study that supports it. You can find a study that, that 
refutes it. None of them are consistent, except for the poop study I'm talking about. If you have a kid with a stretched out rectum and you measure their bladder, it will be hyperactive. And if you normalize their colon by emptying them out, their bladder goes back to normal. So what I did for my kid, for example, I had a middle child was wetting the bed a little bit. I just made sure she was going regularly up the up the Miralax and she was dry in a few months. I mean, that's a little bit easier than most people, but that's the reality. You could do that uh, with everyone. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting because I have like different pieces of experience. My own experience as a parent and my four-year-old who can mostly stay dry, but then will like pee at 5.30 and whether that's just because he doesn't want to get out of bed or whether that's just, he's also the one that's a bit more constipated. So whether that's, you know, because his, you know, bowels are full or whatever. But then I've also worked at the psychology practice where like bedwetting kids up in their nines, tens, teens, even, or like into like that tween age, 12 years old, have come in as bedwetters as well. Does the same thing apply? Because I guess maybe it's a myth. You can help debunk this for me. Is that like some people just take longer developmentally to get to be dry at night and it's a like a developmental thing or they can't wake from their sleep or these types of things is sort of what you're debunking. Is that what I am understanding? I think it's all the poop. Now you could take 20 kids and they may all be constipated, but only some of them have the genes as we mentioned earlier, where that would affect the bladder. And there actually are studies out there that really, you know, it was an epiphany for me where they took some, one was an animal study. One was a human study kind of unrelated, but similar, similar study where they caused rectal dilation in subjects. So they put a balloon in and made the bladder, the rectum stretch, and they saw varying responses in the bladder function. So some people had bladder spasms, so the bladder would go off more often. Some people didn't. So that explains kind of like this variation in the population with bedwetting. And people will, will say, well, you know, bedwetting's inherited because your dad wet the bed. I, I don't think, you know, yes. all to wet the bed or God made us to wet the bed or whatever. I think it's just these nerves, for whatever reason, respond to stretching in different ways in different people. But I'm standing by what I said earlier that, you know, if you look, you will find the poop. And if you fix it, they will get better. We may have a bit of like a genetic predisposition or like select group of people have this sort of sensitivity or or something along those lines. And so if we're one of those more sensitive people or more prone people, and our poop isn't flowing. That's sort of the crux of bedwetting into our like later years. Yeah. If you are a kid that holds their poop in, a kid that gets constipated, and you have pelvic nerves that respond to stretching with bladder overactivity, you will wet the bed. I think, you know, and then you can get kind of philosophical, like, well, what about the kids that aren't wetting the bed? Is it okay to have all this poop inside you? Like, how aggressive should you be? Because, yeah, I definitely don't think it's good for the colon to always be stretched. I have a theory, and I think it's going to end up being true, that a lot of the parents, the kids I see that had similar issues that weren't treated aggressively, sure, they outgrew their bedwetting eventually, but now they have like IBS because their colon's so dilated, they, it's hard for them to regulate diarrhea constipation because because they have this floppy big colon that no one cared to diagnose or treat. So mm. I don't think even, even constipation that's really not causing issues, I think pooping daily is important no matter what is, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And it sounds like there's a couple of different ways that we can be clearing that poop out. And I know that when we spoke to our pediatrician, she with the younger kids likes to go top down first and see if we can like flush it out with like a, we use like a restore relax or something like that. So help me out with what some of the options are to help with this getting poop moving. 
Yeah, there's three basic options. There are osmotic laxatives, which are just large molecules that hold water in the colon, so the poop comes out softer. And so just like, you know, as everyone knows, if the poop's softer, you can get more out easily. There are stimulant laxatives like Exlax or Senna that actually cause contractions and make you poop. The osmotics don't make you poop. They just make you feel like you have to poop because it's it fills up the colon. And then there's enemas repositories, which are bottom-up therapies. Okay. And um, if you look at my resources, you'll know I'm kind of pro enema. I think they work really well because they get to the root of the problem. But if kids show up in my clinic and have never been on anything, you know, because the parents didn't know, then I uh, always offer uh, Miralax first or, or a Storolax or something osmotic because I've got a lot of kids dry just with that. You should never think of the laxative or enema or anything as like the treatment because then people get in the thing where they just, okay, I'm taking Miralax. I'm not dry. What's going on? What your goal is, is to restore the rectum back to normal. So you've got to get the poop out and you've got to keep it empty so that it can shrink back down. So it's kind of a process. It's not like a medical treatment. It's more like you're fixing a problem so then the other problem gets better after. Okay. Which might look like staying on a Restorolax or I don't know if there's like dietary different things that can be done to help the poop continue to move. Is that right? Yeah, so dietary changes are important, but at, in the in the setting that I'm in, they don't make a they don't move the needle very well. So mm. always get them on a balanced diet so they they can have long term success when you they get off the laxatives. But short term, we we do aggressive oral laxative treatment. Sometimes if you're doing just osmotic laxatives like Miralax or Restorolax, we'll do daily dose with cleanouts once or twice a month. You know, big cleanouts. If they're not making progress, we can add enemas or suppositories. Because again, Miralax, it's not like anything magical. It just keeps the poop soft. So it mm -hmm. may wash everything out. It may go around stuff, you know, and you may just get diarrhea and not get really any better. So it's, it's important no matter what you do, because even some enemas fail, you know, to empty the rectum. It's to treat with a little bit and then kind of check. Is the kid getting better? If not, or maybe we should check an x-ray if we're actually uh, doing what we think we're doing. Okay. Interesting. One of the things that I see as like a therapist who works with moms and helps them adjust to motherhood and bringing home other babies and, you know, adding on babies and things like that is that often a toddler or preschooler might go through a regression during a big change or transition or something like that. Can you maybe speak to regressions? What is normal? What is abnormal? Are regressions like a normal thing from a behavioral perspective? I think that changes and regressions are to be expected at certain times or big changes, but I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think that the majority of those are constipation issues. I, I think that there are kids that may be stressors or whatever, you know, and I don't want to minimize any kind of anxiety a kid has, obviously. If you have a, a traumatic household, you know, all bets are off. Who knows, you know, what the brain can do. The brain can control things in weird ways. And so if you have abuse cases or even less severe anxiety, it can affect things. But I think the people's assumption that the anxiety is actually causing accidents overestimates the real cause. And I think a lot of that comes from, you know, just like the almost it's almost a meme of somebody getting scared of peeing on themselves. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The actual fear response is real, right? But I, I don't think many humans ever get to that point. What's more likely is that something happened that made them feel a certain way that met, led them to withhold more. And if, if you withhold just a little bit for long enough, then you get this reflex response. So then you maybe got backed up, maybe went to a new school. We didn't want to poop there. Who knows? But like even in the abuse cases, which are, you know, horrible, I hate even talking about it, but these yeah. kids, it's not like the abuse actually caused the accident, but they were abused. And then they're like really sensitive about their area. So then they start holding in and then they can't control it again. Right. So it's not that, it's not always a direct line to the accents. It's always a connection that probably ended up leading to withholding that then led to the accents. 
Yeah. And one of the things I think that it's important, like for moms listening and things is that like pooping and potty training has such a connection to being one of the only things that our child can control, right? So if we're talking about bringing a new baby home or going to a new school or moving to a new house and everything feels maybe chaotic or change is happening, one of the things, one of the only things that our toddler can control is holding their poop or whether they eat or don't eat or some of these behaviors, right? So it makes sense that they would want some control over it. But I think that it's also so important to be aware of it being more of maybe like a poop issue and just sort of being mindful and staying on top of that. Yeah, if they decide to control it, right, like you're saying, you can see how it ties in, right? I'm going to hold my poop in. Oops, I held it in too long now. I can't control it, you know? And so it kind of leads to that. Yeah. And so I I do think, you know, I go online a lot, obviously, and you're online a lot. And there's a lot of misinformation out there about these things about like, I mean, sometimes it's well-meaning, like maybe try, you know, some less aggressive therapies that may help. But sometimes it's like, oh, your child may have been abused, you know, if they start having bedwetting late. I'm like, oh, goodness. Right. Parents, you know, I mean, let's look for the simple causes first. And then it's very likely that they got constipated for a a non-horrible reason that was just, you know, the bathroom school toilet was too loud or something, you know. Right. Or they had like a hard poop one time in the case of our our little one. And I think that it's, that's a fair disclaimer. I appreciate you saying that. So no mom listening is like, you know, freaking out about (laughs) something that's happened. And also I feel like by the time people get to see you, they've probably been through the hoops of so many, maybe different professionals or their pediatrician or whatever. So you probably get those more extreme cases as well of like really withholding, right? really bad accents, right? Like pooping on themselves, peeing on themselves. They don't even feel it. They're kind of sitting in it. And that's another thing. These kids, when they can't control it, they tend to just sit in the accent. And that raises all these other, you know, what's wrong with my child? And in reality, when you fix the problem, all that goes away. And so not, it's not a bad thing or doesn't mean anything bad if their child is wet and doesn't know it or just sits in it. It's just part of the disease process. When they have no sensation that they're going they often don't sense that they're wet. And I've seen it firsthand. Yeah. And well, it speaks to like this whole voiding issue. And I can't remember if it was before we started the Restore Relax or after, but my son would clench and hold so much that he would finally, I guess, relax when he fell asleep. And then he would end up voiding at night because it's the only time he wasn't like actively trying to withhold, right? Yeah, you can't stop it there. And yeah, for sure. Yeah. So while we didn't like love that system, at least it was clearing and moving and, and something was was moving at that point. So keep in mind too that when the bladder is emptying fully, it is getting a signal to pee, right? So th- th- there's definitely no inhibition to that when you're sleeping, obviously, because the way we stop peeing is you do like a cable or whatever. Um, and you can't do that when you're asleep. So there's two parts to it. One is he was relaxed, he couldn't stop it. But the second is that he's actually getting this reflex which is not normal because of the behavior that was happening during the day. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So what do you think about, and I had seen a question in your media kit, like about celebrities or people who talk about their kids, like, you know, being in these nighttime diapers overnight because they just don't know yet how to control their pee or they can't wake themselves up or whatever. And so for parents, like your advice to them, about nighttime diapering or when to really take this to a pediatrician or a specialist? Like when when should they seek out support for this? Yeah, I think if your child's having accidents, especially while awake, then you should see a doctor right away because there could be a serious problem there. If you're having just bedwetting, 
I mean, the numbers are pretty common. If you're, I, I would do like a low key kind of bowel program until you get to an age where you want to be aggressive with it. So four to five, you know, work on it for a little bit. And then if not better by five, then just definitely talk to someone that knows um, how to treat this. You know, you know, you have your expertise, right? And you kind of like know what you do in your field. And, and if I were to speak to some of your topics that you deal with, I, I would sound ridiculous probably. And so that's how it is with us celebrities. I mean, I think celebrities, you know, just like anyone else, they think they can look at something from the outside and understand it. Like one popular one was uh, Kristen Bell because her kid was, you know, she was saying how her kid was wetting the bed. And there was this big backlash, which is completely not appropriate either mm-hmm. her response was kind of inappropriate too where she was like well then i'll just help wake him up at night so she wasn't really fixing the problem because she doesn't know what the problem is because she's not a urologist and right. so she came up with a solution that would keep her kid dry but wasn't really you know I, I i wish i could convey the knowledge to everyone that you know this is what's going on and if you want them dry functioning normally you should fix this but there's so much noise out there it's hard to rise above the noise a lot of the like even the how do you call it? Like a disciplinary actions, like make the child change the sheets or make them do this if they're, if they're what, I mean, it, it really has no effect. The poor kid doesn't know what they're doing. They're unconscious. And then, you know, there's this whole, I think there's this Kickstarter thing, pajamas that raised Lord knows how much money for pajamas that get wet. And the whole idea is, well, they'll teach your kid to stay dry because they'll feel they're wet. It's okay. After the fact, you know, I mean, sure, bed wetting alarms may work, but that's not really what's going on. Your kid's peeing again while they're unconscious. So something is causing that. Reflux. Right. That's what you got to fix. And so that's what we're trying to do is just number one, protect the kids, make sure people understand that they're not having accidents on purpose because it frustrates a lot of parents and then help them get better. Because, you know, I see the kids that are 10, 12, like you said, 14, 15, right. 19, their whole lives. If they'd seen me, you know, 10 years ago, they'd be dry and they suffered for 10 years. Couldn't go to Boy Scouts or camps or, you know, sleepovers. And then you're dealing with a slew of, you know, self-esteem issues and other other things that like that is now starting to impact. Right. And I, yeah. I tell everybody, look, this is worst case scenario. Yeah. Worst case scenario. I could Botox them and they would be better. You know, I could just skip over all the problems and make their bladder not respond to the colon. You know, if you needed it, mm-hmm. Botox, you can make anyone dry uh, at that age. So I, I don't routinely Botox people. But my point is. Why suffer through it if you can if they're if it's treatable and it totally is treatable? I love that approach. And it seems sort of counter how surgeons are trained, right? They're trained to like be surgeons. And yeah, the yeah. fact that you're taking this very sort of, I don't know, just a, a different approach with trying to treat it from like the earliest proactive signs, you know, so it doesn't have to get to a place of requiring surgery and, and these more you know, invasive. We put this all in a big umbrella of bowel and bladder dysfunction. It's changed mm-hmm. names. It used to be called dysfunctional elimination. Now it's called bowel and bladder dysfunction. But it, it encompasses uh, urinary reflux, which is a you know condition that operated on that girl I mentioned earlier before. UTIs in girls, uh, painful voiding sometimes in boys, peeing too frequently, peeing too urgently, sometimes not peeing enough. All these fall into the same umbrella of dysfunction, which if you just do the simple things we're talking about, get the colon empty regularly all kind of disappear because withholding poop causes so much disruption to like the normal physiology. Just fixing that one problem really helps. I mean, it's not like a silver bullet for everything, but it helps a lot of these problems. And, and again, like all our literature says, first step, you know, fix the poop. Everyone says your kid's always constipated, but even the people that say that don't get x-rays to prove it. And so that's what I'm trying to say. You know, you're probably missing this. It brings up some interesting, and I'm just going to sort of think these things out loud as I'm thinking about my experience in the practice that I used to work at. Like, how would a parent know 
like, let's say I'm, I'm thinking of a particular case of like, a, I want to say 12 year old um, girl who was peeing and urinating around the house. And there was a lot of question about whether this was a like behavioral thing, whether this was a physiological thing. And it seemingly turned out to be a behavioral thing uh, because with some therapy and some family therapy and, you know, getting on kind of like a sitting routine and some different things, it did resolve itself. But can we help maybe draw a line with how parents might identify if it's their child's body that is having the issue versus a behavioral issue? Maybe this is something we could try and hash out together. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think it's, you know, how you, you have to make some assumptions in life and you just have to like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but it's, it's better. I don't know if there, you could probably come up with an example. It's better to assume that it's all physiologic and they can't control it because Number one, you could rule out all the medical causes, which are important. There could yes. be there are kids with spinal cord disorders that get missed. There are kids with anatomic issues that get missed um, that are just urinary tract anatomy that should get worked up. And then, you know, the bowel issue. And if you do all that and they don't get better, then, you know, if 1% of them is the kind of kid that for whatever reason just is going to go pee in a drawer or something, then mm-hmm. you, you can work that out and, and you guys, um, your profession can handle that. But I, I think if you err on the side of giving them the benefit of the doubt. I love that approach. Yes. Because, because the it, child abuse for incontinence is a real thing. It's a real problem. Wow. You yeah. Every year for that. So I, I, I'm real careful to always almost over the top push that they can't control it. That's why we have a book on the topic, because it is way better to assume that it is not controlled and just work from that, because that way the kid's protected and you're probably going to solve, you know, 95% of cases anyway. I really appreciate that perspective. I respect that a lot. And and in retrospect, when I do think about this particular case, I think that they had ruled out all physiological possibilities at that point. And that's how they ended up in treatment with us. So that's a really valid point that start with the physiological pieces and exploring those options and, you know, getting poop moving and these types of things. And then I think that also like there are therapists who are trained to work with parenting. Like if we're finding that the power struggle and the lack of control in ourselves as a parent, like not being able to get our child to go and this power struggle can ensue, there are therapists and there are, you know, parenting supports that can help us regulate our own frustration with not being in control of this pooping situation. Because it's like, oh, you look like you should be able to go or this is frustrating or you were just going last week and now you're not going. And and there is this, like you said, frustration and, and things that can bubble up with a parent. And there are behavioral and, and therapy supports to help you through those situations because it can become a big power struggle, potty training and pooping and peeing and things like that. Yeah. And most of the kids I see, I just to clarify a little bit is, you know, they're just walking around and they'll pee on themselves and have no idea, which is a little bit different than I'm going to go pee in the bedroom and then tell you later that I did it, you know, on purpose with, you know, and so you have to yeah. tease it out. But yeah, I mean, what's the old uh, video they used to show when you had a kid, don't shake the baby. Yeah. There's no stress like parenting, right? I've, you know, you've been through stressful things. I've been through residency and stuff and, and nothing tests you like parenthood. And I think, you know, parents need all the resources they can to just kind of no one's at their best when they're mad at their kids. And so you need a lot of help. I, Lord knows I've not handled the situations perfectly. So, right. Um, yeah. Any help we can to get kids. Because even p- my children having small episodes of urinary frequency where they had to pee too often on a trip or 
the couple times my daughter went to bed when she went to bed, you know, it was, it was like, geez, you know, I was thinking to myself, if this happened for a long time, it would drive me up all. And right. so I do feel for parents that don't get the right treatment or, you know, or maybe can't handle the stress as well as other parents can. Yeah. And it's a real, like I'm a therapist with three boys and my kids withholding his poop could like level the whole house with his meltdowns and the, you know, so it's like, we yeah. feel it. We're, we're sort of like parents first before professionals even, and, you know, and it's, it's a real, it's a real struggle for parents. One of the things that also popped into my head, what we're going to think about wrapping up here in just a second is, is there a difference between boys and girls? I've heard this a lot, like girls potty train earlier or like boys are more delayed. Is there anything in your practice that you've seen that is like a difference? There are statistics, uh, but I don't see them borne out r- really. I think the anatomy is, um, the only thing actually that I consider, and I, and, and I think like I've kind of pragmatic. So if there were, if I, I tend to focus on the differences that matter to me on a day-to-day kind of make yeah. it better and is that girls can, so the kind of incontinence or I hate saying incontinence, the kind of accents we're talking about with pee in boys will always be, you know, I can't make the bathroom and I leak my whole bladder and they may be the constipation. It may be spinal cord issue. There's one anatomic condition in boys called urethral valves where they can be born with a little blockage. Usually it's picked up before birth but sometimes it's not picked up till later. And so that has to be ruled out as well. And then in girls, they can have two kinds of leakage that are different. that are just a continual dripping. And so some kids show up, you know, I'm wet. Now, are you wet because you're dry all day and then you have a big flood? And if they have a little bit of yeeking, two conditions that can cause that that are unrelated to what we've sp- spoken about. One is vaginal voiding, you know, it's just girls tend to pee with their legs together and they tend to collect urine in their vagina and it drips out later. It sounds crazy, but it's super common. And that's just usually about a spot of urine and you always smell it on them and it can be very bothersome to people. Second is some kids can actually have, and girls only, have a tube from their kidney that inserts outside the bladder. So your kidneys make urine, the tubes go to your bladder, fills it up, and then you empty. Some girls have a tube that enters outside the bladder, continually leaking. I just saw a girl, she was 15, her whole life she was told she's incontinent. I did an x-ray, she had that tube, I moved the tube, she's dry. Hmm. That's what I'm saying, which I think can reinforce my decision. If you aggressively treat accidents, not only, maybe I'm wrong, but you'll find another cause right? right, that's going to help the kid regardless. So never consider it normal. It's like you talk about women and like the leaking. It makes me think about the postpartum moms that I work with and then the different like incontinence issues or like pee issues that can come as a result of that as well. And maybe that's a whole other conversation for maybe a different urologist because you specialize in. That's a valid point though, because a lot of people think, okay, well, she's leaking, you know, you know, I'm 50 and and I leak completely different causes. Kegels can help older women. Kegels can actually make it more difficult for young girls. So you really got to tease out the, the very different physiology for kids in adult wedding. Yeah. Yeah. And like pelvic floor physio, and that's a whole sort of conversation about women postpartum that don't need to have leakage or, or things like that. So great. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you being here and having as much like passion and just knowledge to deliver this information to parents about poop as like poop. We joke in our group or like as moms, when your topic of conversation at the dinner table is poop and did we poop today? And how was the poop hard? Was it soft? You know? And so to be able to really bring some knowledge to the situation and some practical skills to help parents really appreciate it. So thank you for your time today. No, and thank you. And that point that you made is a valuable one. Just talking about it, it, you're ahead of the game because most people don't talk about it and the kids don't even think about it. So they're kind of hiding and don't even know. So thank you for saying that. And where can people find you? Where can they find your book and resources that you've put out? 
they hanging out online anywhere? We have a website that's got everything. Bedweddingandaccidents.com. That's bedweddingandaccidents.com. And then I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Dr. Steve Hodges. So you can contact me with me there. All right. Sounds great. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.